Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Uh, I wanted to start by saying a few years ago, I had a revelation of sorts, and I don't mean like a shaft of light came down from heaven and I heard the voice of God, so please don't uh, take it that way. But as it pertains to the Word of God, and it absolutely revolutionized my walk with Christ and how I did ministry. And I've always believed that the Bible was the most important aspect of how the attributes of God and of Christ himself were revealed to us in Scripture. However, I had yet to truly see how perfect, how harmonized, how complete, and how miraculous God's Word actually is when you begin to look at the text itself. So while I held it in high esteem, I was missing a large portion of understanding and spiritual knowledge simply because I read the Bible intuitively and I banked mostly on what others taught me, specifically denominational frameworks and such. But quite frankly, the most pervasive influence, and I would say the thing that caused kind of damaging ignorance in my walk with the Lord for a period of time came right out of church culture, like what the church was actually walking through and believing at the time. No one was purposefully leading me or anyone else astray, like in a maniacal way, you know, like, um, you know, laughing fiendishly or anything like that. Uh, They weren't purposefully watering down what God's word says. But what I seem to find is that instead of truly understanding the scriptures, it was an unending telephone game. And you guys know what I mean by that when you start on one end and you You say something, and then they whisper it down the line, and by the time it gets to the end, it's something else completely different. And I find that this takes place often with Scripture and the meaning of Scripture, and they get things from different sources, and some guy says something clever at some point, and somebody picks up on that, and he he kind of uh, messes with it a little bit and teaches it again. And then you find out sometimes that has nothing to do with the meaning, has nothing to do with what Scripture is actually saying. And so the meaning itself was being lost in the process. So what exactly was it then that opened my eyes, that actually made me, uh, gave me a whole new respect, uh, widened my respect for the Word of God? Well, it was first uh, truly understanding that if God is all-powerful, surely He has the power to preserve His Word across the ages. So you're talking about God, and you're saying He's God, and He's all-powerful, but He's not very powerful if he cannot give us the word of God and keep it the word of God without men meddling with it and messing it all up along the way. Does that make sense? If he can't even do that, he's not much of a a God. Amen? So you have to trust that God is God and that the word he's delivering to us or has delivered to us once and for all for the saints, that that word is his word. And we trust that, okay? Um, If somehow he did not have the, the power or foreknowledge like I said, to anticipate the things, the attacks that the enemy would come against it. And there are so many stories that I've seen of, of ways that, that whole cultures have tried to destroy the Word of God and then God, in the act of their trying to destroy it, actually preserved His Word. Like in the uh, case of many of the Egyptian burial masks, they would take the papyrus, they would, uh, the Word of God, they would cut it into pieces and make Egyptian burial masks out of it uh, in order to destroy the written Word. And so they would bury, well, then thousands of years later, they go back and they dig these bodies up and they find these burial masks, basically paper mache, 
and they have the ability to put it under a scanner with the technology that we have, and it goes bit by bit, layer by layer, and they can put it all together with computers, and they actually, in trying to destroy the Word, preserve the Word. Is that not amazing? And God has done that in many different cases and many different ways across the ages. He has the power to preserve His Word. And it seems, though, that, that the validity of God's Word more and more, even in the body of Christ, is, is being called into question. So... I believe we can truly rely upon the Word of God knowing that He in His divine power and omniscience has delivered to His church the Word that He intended to deliver to us. And if we will just study it as it instructs us to do, to take great pains and show everyone around us our progress and trust it completely, it is effectual in its transformative power in our lives. It will change you. The washing of the Word in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be sanctified, you will grow and if you're truly doing that, there's no way around it. You're going to grow in the Lord. And so I hope all of you believe that this morning, that you can trust wholeheartedly in the Word of God. One of the main things that opened my eyes was the revelation that we do not just read the Bible intuitively and ponder it logically like we would any other book. That's one aspect of understanding Scripture. But God's Word, again, has many different layers. It's a multi-dimensional book, and the Holy Spirit must illuminate its meaning to a believer. And only true believers can actually see Scripture for what it really is. And don't get me wrong, I'm, no, I'm in no way saying that Scripture has various meanings, okay? Every single verse in the Bible has one meaning, and, and it means what it means. And it means exactly what God said. Like when you tell your husband, will you go take out the trash? Or you ask him, go take out the trash, okay? He's not like, did you tell me to comb my hair? Like, he's not trying to figure out if you're being allegorical or spiritual. He's not trying to figure out hidden meanings. It means go take out the trash. That's the way the human language works. So when God gave us his word, he gave it to us, and every verse means what it says, and it says what it means, and we're supposed to believe that. Now, it has varying myriads of different uh, um, applications in our lives depending upon the circumstances that we're going through, okay? But what I'm saying is every word in God's word is inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, and something that I have gained uh, even more understanding on is it is sufficient. That, that Peter tells us that the word of God uh, gives us everything that we need in order to live a life of godliness and honoring to the Lord. But every sentence, every chapter, every book, and, and here's where I've been consistently blown away, not only in that, but God even inspired the grammar. He even inspires the grammar. Is, is the, uh, he, he inspired how the book itself is compiled and how the authors arranged the different stories and such and laid out the sequential and chronological order of each of those things, chapter, verse, etc., or lack of sequential order or chronological order in a particular book. Uh, all of those things show us the meaning of the actual text, and there's hidden meaning and power in all of that stuff. And that's what has truly blown me away in the last five years as I study God's Word. I will be studying, and I will read a, uh, a passage in Zephaniah, and then I'll read one in the New Testament, say in Luke or something, and, and it'll be connected, and I will just be blown away at how perfect the Word of God is. There's no way, like, get... Get 66 different uh, carpenters and have them all write a, a, a primer on, on how carpentry is supposed to work. 
and then try to put those 66 books together from 66 different carpenters and see if there are any contradictions in it. See if it flows and reads like one book. That in and of itself is miraculous. Amen? So uh, my goal today in this overview is to make that point well so that you too will see how masterfully and intricately the Spirit of God inspired each and every one of these authors to write their own particular books and in some uh, various books. So let's begin this morning with our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, our, I'm calling it the Overview Part 1 because we're going we're gonna to do a second part next week and connect it with... Today we're staying primarily in the book of Mark. Next week I'll be connecting the book of Mark with the overarching themes of the Bible, uh, bringing in Genesis, bringing in Job, and then telling what was happening when the book of Mark was actually released to the church. And that's going to be a powerful study as well. So those of you who are taking notes... You're going to want to go to the very beginning before the scripture even starts and start taking your notes there. And I would say write small. And uh, if you don't write small, I will post my notes, okay? I'll let you see a little bit behind the curtain later and see how I kind of prepare my notes. Here's a big hint. I prepare them and I essentially read them to you in a way that hopefully doesn't look like I'm constantly reading to you. And the reason is because I want to be, uh, I want to hold true to what the Bible actually says. And so also for your benefit, if I don't do that, I wind up preaching 30 minutes longer, okay? So that's actually to your benefit as well. So I want to be concise and I want to keep it, um, keep it shorter than what it would be otherwise. Okay, so number one, number one about the author. Every time you pick up a book, you're gonna, most of the time you're gonna, there's that spot in the back of the book or whatever that says about the author. Number one, about the author. It's called the gospel according to Mark. And that word gospel was a, was a, new, was a new thing as far as a written form of a, of, of a book or, or whatever released to people. And so this was a new genre uh, in the Christian realm called a, the gospel of Mark. And of course, we know uh, about the other gospels. But who is this Mark guy? Well, his name was actually John Mark, and he was not an apostle. So that begs the question then, why should we listen to him if he wasn't an apostle? Why would we take his account of what actually happened? Was it really Mark who wrote this gospel? Because there is no place in this written account where the author actually identifies himself. So how do we know? Well, we rely on church history. And we have sources in the early church that confirm this. And in addition, we have no contradictions to that claim. So all of the early church uh, fathers agree that it was John Mark who wrote this book, and nobody said, hey, wait a second, there's evidence, internal evidence in the book or external evidence that we found that suggests that John Mark didn't write this book. None of that ever happened, okay? So we're trusting history. We're trusting the sources early on in the church, and they all agree. In fact, um, we have an early testimony of a church father by the name of Papias, who was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. We've talked about him before. Uh, obviously, the writer of Revelation is John, and Papias was his direct disciple. He quoted the Apostle John as saying this, the gospel was indeed written by John Mark. So the Apostle John himself uh, actually said that. He also said that Mark was not an eyewitness, but a close follower and a right-hand man, a right-hand man of Peter for a time, so he got most of his information from the Apostle Peter. But also, the Apostle John said that Mark's gospel lacked order, that it lacked order. Now, 
You might take that as a slight at first, like it's a cut down to the book. It's not at all. Um, he's simply stating that Mark did not write his gospel for the purpose of sequential order or chronological order. That was not his purpose, and you will see that as we get into this. Um, he wrote accurately, he said, though not a, chron a chronological account of all the details of Christ's life, the Spirit had a different purpose in mind for Mark's gospel. And uh, the few other things that we need to know about the author Mark in Acts 13, Acts 13, Mark joined Paul and Barnabas, who Barnabas was actually John Mark's cousin, okay? So he was connected to Barnabas in that way. And uh, he went with them on their missionary journey. And for whatever reason, and we're not told this in Scripture, for whatever reason, there was some drama. Once they got to Asia Minor, Mark actually abandoned Paul and Barnabas, and he left, and he went home. And very clearly, Paul was upset by this. He didn't like that John Mark had abandoned them because we see further drama later in Acts 15, uh, where Barnabas suggests to Paul that John Mark join them to go back to Asia Minor, and, uh, and Paul shot that idea down. Basically, he didn't want Mark to go along because he had abandoned them before when they went the first time, and he didn't want him to be around at that point. And of course, this led to friction between Barnabas and Paul, and so Barnabas takes his cousin, John Mark, and they go instead, and uh, they go to Cyprus, Okay. So Mark obviously proved himself on subsequent missionary journeys and all was forgiven, even by the Apostle Paul, because we find that in Scripture as well. Uh, later in Paul's writing, he said in Philemon 24, Paul calls Mark his, quote, fellow laborer. And then he also says in 2 Timothy that Mark is useful to me in ministry. Same guy, they've reconciled, they've made amends, now they're working together as co-laborers, and Paul says he is useful to me in ministry, okay? Um, in, we also read in 1 Peter that Peter calls him uh, my son. So he and Peter were very close as well. This all means that Mark was a right-hand man uh, for a time of both Paul and Peter, both eyewitnesses of Jesus, and then even Barnabas for a time, okay? So he has the connections. And again, Christ chose his apostles, and then the apostles had right-hand men who also wrote some of the scripture and also performed many of those miracles and such that we read in the book of Acts. So he's a trustworthy source, as are all of the historical affirmations alluding to his gospel being written, uh, this gospel being written by John Mark, and again, likely a result of Peter's account with Jesus. Now, according to an early church far, uh, father by the name of uh, John, Justin Martyr, and that's, you guys have heard of Justin Martyr, okay? Um, Mark was writing Peter's memoirs and his, and of his time with Jesus. Quote, that's what he said, Justin Martyr. Mark was writing Peter's memoirs of his time with Jesus, okay? So that's another early uh, church father. And then Papias once again stated, he wrote, quote, without mistake, without omitting anything Peter told him, and without adding anything fictitious, Okay, so he was saying he didn't add to or take away, which we find all throughout Scripture. Those are the two no-nos about Scripture. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. Okay, and that includes the dude up here in the pulpit preaching. Uh, if you're giving your opinions, you need to say you're giving your opinions. You're a herald. You're not an orator. You're not trying to impress people with your speech and your talent and all that. 
You are there simply to say, thus saith the Lord, and then you, you tell what the Bible says. So for the note takers, number two, date written. Number two, date written. When we're trying to figure out the actual date as to when the, the book of Mark was written, that gets a little more difficult because, again, there's no internal indication in the writing itself of events or anything like that that would connect uh, the, the, or pinpoint a solid date. However, most scholars believe it was written in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, okay? And um, what's interesting is in our modern day, depending upon your eschatology, you will tweak the writings when the writings were written forward or backwards depending upon what you want to believe as far as your eschatology. That's interesting. Number three, number three, notable attributes. Number three, notable attributes. Now, this is a little more like a kind of like a, a college course today, the introduction of a college course of a survey of the book of Mark. So I appreciate you guys being patient in that. But I really do think by the end of this, you're going to see some wonderful things. Number three, notable attributes. Okay, and then the letter A, Mark's gospel is the shortest. A, Mark's gospel is the shortest. Among the four gospels, uh, his is the shortest. It's the most brief. It's fast-paced, and it's purposeful, Okay. Uh, the word immediately is often used. It keeps the reader or the listener on their toes. There are no long speeches in the book of Mark, like the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew and other accounts. There are no genealogies. It's just one point after another, one event after another, and he uses that word, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. It's like, and he was trying to keep the pace going. Uh, another pretty unique quality of the book of Mark uh, and why I spoke of its structure or its composition being divinely inspired is, is letter B, Mark sandwiches. Mark sandwiches, okay? And uh, this is very, very interesting to, to study. So letter B, Mark sandwiches. Mark will start to tell a story, and then almost as if he's distracted right in the middle of the story, he'll begin. It's, it's like, you know, today we would make a comment about someone being ADD or whatever. Right in the middle of the story, he switches to another story or another event taking place. And then it'll go for a while and he'll finish up that. And then he'll go back to the original story and finish that up. And that's called a Mark sandwich or a Markin sandwich. Okay. And, uh, and that's actually a term that, that, you know, I don't know, fancy theologians use. And um, there's an example, um, but here's why it's called that. Obviously, the first and the last part of the story are like the bread, and then whatever's in the middle is like the meat of the story. That's really that's the, what's driving the meaning of all three of them being together. So um, Mark 11, turn to Mark 11 in your little book there real quick. Or if you have your Bible, you can do that as well and keep your notes where you are. Mark 11, we're going to look at verse 12. Mark 11, verse 12. Mark begins talking about a fig tree. And because the fig tree has no fruit on it, you guys have all read the story. Jesus curses the fig tree. And of course, if we're reading intuitively, we might say, wow, Jesus was in a bad mood that day. That's not at all what's going on. Do you see what I mean by we don't read intuitively? We do not, uh, you know, try to speculate as to what's going on. The meaning is there. All right. Um, but anyway, it says uh, he curses it. And then it says, quote, and his disciples were listening. That's and then kind of like dot, dot, dot. Then suddenly we're in Jerusalem and Jesus is turning over the tables of the money changers in the temple courts. 
His reaction is an outward rebuke of how they had defiled the temple. They had defiled the house of the Lord and turned it into a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer, which God intended. And then in verse 20, we're back at the fig tree again as they're going back away from the city. And we see the results of his curse on the fig tree uh, a few, just a few verses earlier. And the Holy Spirit inspired, inspired, I can't talk, inspired the composition of Mark's writing in these sandwiches for the purpose, again, of the two stories being interpreted together. There's meaning intertwined in this. The fig tree did not bear fruit, so it brought his curse and the results. It withered, and what of Israel then? Well, after God had given them the scriptures, God had given them the Messiah, and the fig tree often represents Israel in scripture, okay? They had swapped God's instruction for worship, uh, God's instruction for how they ought to worship for man-made religion and a man-made religious system. They brought Jesus' curse on their religious system, and that's what was going on in the temple when he turned the tables over. And what were they, these results? Well, within a few decades, just like the fig tree withered from the roots, in a few decades, the temple itself had been completely destroyed, as Jesus said it would, and the whole system of their man-made religious system had collapsed. Okay? Same thing. So these marked sandwiches are found in chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 14, and 15. So cha uh, chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, chapter 14, and chapter 15. And so th this is something that he did often, and this is, again, what the Holy Spirit inspired. Not to highlight chronological events and details, but rather by sandwiching topics together to highlight a larger spiritual point, or what we like to call, the guys often call, a timeless truth. Because every passage of Scripture, there is application that involves us, and that is the timeless truth. It transcends the ages, and that's the application that we hold on to uh, in our own lives. In addition... It creates a little bit of suspense for the reader, um, sort of a cliffhanger type effect as the reader moves along in the text, and it really engages us in the narrative of the Scripture as it's going on. All right, letter C, repetition. Letter C, repetition. Mark uses more repeated words or similar words to, make, uh, to put emphasis on certain things. So you don't have to turn there, but you can write down um, these and then you can go back and look at it later. But in chapter 1, verse 32, chapter 1, verse 32, he says, quote, Now when evening came, after the sun had set, okay, so he kind of, it's, it's sort of redundant and he does that on purpose, all right, because he could have said one or the other, but why both? Well, again, if you're, many people believe that he wrote this, for the purpose of being read aloud to amen. That was an amen, just in case you guys... Uh, he, he, he wrote this in such a way to be read aloud to folks. And we're going to learn next week even more during this time. They were huddled oftentimes by candlelight in catacombs with, with dead you know, bodies around them because they were hiding from the authorities. And so this was being read. There weren't copies all over the place the way we have copies today. And so someone would read it, and that's what we're seeing here, okay? Um, it gives just an added bit of emphasis or pause for the listener when he repeats things to sort of close out their thoughts concerning what had just been said. And they can kind of catch up for a moment, let their brain catch up, start a new paragraph, new scene change. And another example is at the feeding of the 5,000, and that's found in... Uh, um, well, we'll get there in just a moment. It's Mark 6, but 
let's look at Matthew's gospel. You don't have to turn there. I'll quote it, okay? Because if, if we go to all the scriptures today, we'll be here for a while. So just try to take copious notes. Um, in Matthew's gospel, for instance, when we're talking about the 5,000, it's in chapter 14, verse 19, Matthew 14, 19, and he puts it this way, quote, And ordering the crowds to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and two fish. That's what Matthew says. If you turn to Luke 9, 14, this is the account in the book of Luke, he writes, quote, And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups, about 50 each. That's what Luke said. Now, what does Mark write then? Well, we go to Mark chapter 6, verse, verses 39 and 40. Mark 6, 39 and 40, and here's what Mark writes. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Now, that's not a contradiction. That's one of the authors who has information that he, that he actually offers a little more detail in that particular uh, account. And we see that actually in the account of the demon-possessed man. Um, in one account, it says that there was one demon-possessed man. In another account, there are two demon-possessed men. And it's the same account, but one author chooses, because of the redundancy, just to stick with one man and tells the story. It really is redundant to, to talk about the two different men when it's the exact same story. Okay, And so we'll see things like that throughout the Gospels as well. But Mark actually expanded, gave a little bit more detail, and again, in giving that vivid description, an added opportunity for his uh, listener to pause for a moment and catch up with what's being said. It was written, again, as I said, remember, to be read aloud in groups of people. Uh, these unique attributes of the book of Mark, uh, it being the shortest, most fast-paced, with added details and repetition as if it were intended to be read aloud, uh, again, that's really important to understand as we continue studying the book of Mark. For the note takers, we're on letter D, letter D, unless we're not, and if I made a mistake, you can yell out at me and tell me, but uh, letter D, patterns and storytelling techniques. Patterns and storytelling techniques. Mark chapter 2, we see additional attributes in the writing style that emphasize a composition like the structure of, of the book and Mark's storytelling narrative using various techniques. Technique number one, questions answered with a question. Okay, so technique number one is questions answered with a question. I'll repeat that one more time. Technique number one, questions answered with a question. So in this pattern, someone in the narrative asks Jesus a challenging question um, or series of questions. And usually, the intent behind the questions being asked is to trap Jesus, to get him caught up somehow, because their intent was to trap him and then kill him if they could, like get him to blaspheme or whatever. And we know eventually that's the, it was a mock trial and false accusations, and they did what they wanted to do anyway. But his response is either answering their questions, or more often, he responds by asking them a question himself, Okay. You ever had a friend or somebody that would do that? You ask them a question and they answer you with a question? Well, Jesus did this a lot. Also important to note, they never answer his question once he poses a question. They never answer, and it's because they realize uh, you're actually trying to have a, an argument with God, okay? And uh, who's, you'll see that in the text. Um, they either can't answer his question or they refuse as he himself has trapped them in some way 
and they don't want to look stupid. So in Mark 2, 2 through 12, Mark 2, 2 through 12, it says, And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof over where he was. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the mat where the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts said, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Very interesting question that they asked there in that moment. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Maybe within that question itself, there's a very large hint of who Christ was. Okay? Um, So watch this. Verse 8. Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, so he was reading their minds, okay, said to them, here's his question, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and pick up your mat and walk. So there are his two questions he poses to their questioning in their own hearts. Verse 10. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, so you know that I'm God. Right? Connect the dots. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the mat and went out before everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So yeah, none of these folks had seen anything like this because this was Christ, the Messiah, the God-man, who can easily heal a man of his condition because he created the entire universe. More importantly, Jesus can forgive that man's sins. So when he says your sins are forgiven, the man's sins were forgiven because he's God. If you glance down at verse 18 there, verse 18 the challenging uh, um, man-made religious question they asked in this account is, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast, right? Constantly just nitpicking about every little thing. And, And he answers again with a question. Can the attendants of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Again, in verse 23, the story cuts to Jesus and the disciples passing through the grain fields. So we see that account. Now, in again, just three verses down, the Jesus and the disciples walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples start picking the heads of grain, and they're popping them in their mouth, okay, as they're walking along. They're just taking a little bit of wheat, but it's the Sabbath, okay? And lo and behold, there were Pharisees with one another right near them and saw them doing them. And they had another challenging man-made religious question here, okay? And here's what they said. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, what does Jesus say? He says this a lot. He actually asked this question. Have you not read? Hey, have you ever actually read the scripture? Scribes and Pharisees, have you actually read it? Do you know what it actually says? Here's what he says. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became 
uh, hungry. How he entered the house of God around the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Verse 27, And Jesus was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You've got it mixed up. He says in verse 28, Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay? So once again, puts them in their place. Every time he asked them a question back, it was pinpointing their man-made religion and to the fact, pointing to the fact that he himself is the God-man. He's God. Why can I forgive man's sins and heal him? Because I'm creator God who has the authority to, to do both. Why do my disciples not fast? Because now I'm the bridegroom dwelling among the bride. It's time for rejoicing. Their fasting will actually come when I'm gone. Okay? Why can, I, why can my disciples pick and eat he, uh, heads of grain on the Sabbath and break your man-made laws? Because I am God and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I make the rules. It's my world. I made the rules and everybody else has to live with it. Okay? By the way, that's some good theology right there. From these questions posed to Christ and then Jesus' response with his own questions, what do we learn of who Christ really is in all of these interactions? We see again in chapter 11, verse 28. Chapter 11, verse 28. By what authority, they ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? They're questioning him again. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. That's what Jesus said. Okay. Happens again in chapter 12, verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 14. The Sadducees this time ask, and the Sadducees uh, didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in any of that stuff. And uh, I learned a long time ago, that's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't be believe in any of that stuff, okay? <laughs> so chapter 12, verse 14, the Sadducees asked, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Like, oh, you're testing me. You know, you guys ever said that to your kids? Why are you testing me? <laughs> I don't know that I've said that. I think I've heard Krista say that a few times. So in chapter 12, verse 18, they try to, chapter 12, eight, verse 18, they try to trap him again on the topic of marriage and the resurrection, asking, quote, in the resurrection, when the husband and these, or several husbands and the wife rises again, right? Because they give this whole drawn out thing trying to trap him. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be in heaven? Like they're trying to get him caught up in some weird, you know, nuanced uh, theology, mistake in his theology. And his question to them in verse 24, is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures nor do you understand the power of God. You're clueless. You guys are clueless. That's what he's saying. You, not only have you not read, you don't understand the, the scriptures that you do read, and you certainly don't understand the power of God. And of course, we know that after the resurrection in heaven, there won't be marriage or people given in marriage the way there is on earth. 
enjoy your marriage on this earth. That's the only time you're going to get it. It's a little bit sad to us as we, if we really love our spouses, but you just have to understand it's whatever you have now and the beauty that you have now, and it's going to be opened up in a much more beautiful, eternal way with Christ in the mix, and it's just going to be incredible, unfathomable. So don't cry too hard about that. I know Krista spent days and morning over that. Um, now there's one scribe in chapter 12, verse 32, asking a question, and this exchange between he and Jesus seems quite genuine. Uh, and Jesus answers this time not with a question, but with the Shema, okay? And the Shema is the passage in Deuteronomy. You've heard it many, many times. And I think Jesus was sensing the humble attitude of this particular Pharisee. He was there asking the question with the right heart. And Jesus answered, you know, he asks him, Jesus, which is the most uh, important, you know, uh, commandment? And Jesus says the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there is no other commandment greater than these. So again, we said a few weeks ago, it's always boiled down to loving God with all your being and loving people. It's all, you can't take one of those away and still be honoring God with your life. And this time, the scribe responds thoughtfully to Jesus, Quote, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's pretty incredible. Now, Jesus's next statement actually pinpoints a transition in Mark's narrative. And look at what verse 34 says. It says this, After that, no one would dare to ask him any more questions. Okay? In other words, checkmate. Jesus can drop the mic, however you want to say it. No one would dare ask Jesus another question because they knew, guys, this strategy is not working at all. Like, he's, he's pretty much put us in our place in every single account. All right? Everything we've tried to trap him in has, has essentially blown up in our face. Uh, he is too well-versed in the Word. Why? Because he's the Word made flesh. Christ is the Word made flesh. He's too intelligent. Why? Because he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's in tune with the Spirit of God and the Father at all times. He knows all. You cannot trap the omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, sovereign God in the flesh. And finally, they had figured that out, and so they stopped asking him dumb questions. Okay? Note takers, we're still under letter D, patterns and storytelling techniques, but this is technique to questions and responses. Questions and responses. These questions here were not for the purpose of trapping Jesus, but rather the questions and the responses, and at times Jesus' rebuke actually exposes a deeper underlying truth about where their, their uh, actual motives and where their heart was in the situation. So in chapter 10, verse 17, chapter 10, verse 17, you know this account as the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler. It's chapter 10, verse 17, here's what the rich young ruler, uh, likely a Pharisee, says to, says to Jesus. Good teacher, what shall I do to in inherit eternal life? Verse 18, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud or honor or dishonor oh, and honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler's arrogant and clearly mistaken response exposes his heart. He says, quote, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. The original, I cannot tell a lie, right? He's never actually bore false witness or said something that was, that was a lie. Come on. Jesus then obviously wanting to expose his true heart in verse 21, it says, after his response, Jesus loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So he rearranges his thinking and then he offers him to be a disciple and follow him. Verse 22, but at least these words, uh, but at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. So exposed his heart and what he truly treasured, didn't it? So write this down, write this down. Jesus was exposing the heart. Jesus was exposing the heart in light of the call. Jesus was exposing the heart in light of the call to come follow me and the cost of true discipleship. Jesus was exposing the heart in light of the call to come follow me and the cost of true discipleship. And, and that's what we're going to see here. This rich young ruler was speaking in human terms. I'll repeat it one more time unless, did everybody get it? No. Jesus was exposing the heart in light of the call to come follow me and the cost of true discipleship. All right. So this rich young ruler was thinking in human terms. And Jesus was saying that your human standard of righteousness is not enough, not even close. Now look at verse 26 in your Bible there in Mark. Um, the disciples ask Jesus, then following this account, then who can be saved? Oh, I'm sorry, that was chapter 10? Should be? Chapter 10, verse 26. If it's not, let me know. Okay. The disciples asked Jesus, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So again, stop thinking in human terms. Stop thinking the way your brain normally thinks. You had nothing to do with being born, right? None of you in here did. You didn't have anything to do with that, just in case uh, you're someone who thinks the world revolves around you and you actually did. You had nothing to do with your own birth, okay? Only God, and, and in this same way, you have nothing to do with really being born again. Only God can make the miracle of salvation possible. Only God can make the miracle of salvation possible. But wait, there's more here. In verse 28, verse 28, Peter says, Behold, telling Jesus he's going to be boastful. He's going to think in human terms, Behold, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. So he's thinking really high, highly of himself and the other disciples. And right after Jesus had made the point that you shouldn't be thinking that following him is dictated in human terms by human means, this was Peter's arrogant boast. And Jesus exposed Peter's heart in light of the call to come follow me and the cost of true discipleship. Peter, yes, there will be rewards involved 
in your following me, but also many persecutions. And the truth is you have to change your thinking because the last shall be first and the first will be last in the kingdom. And so you're thinking about everything the wrong way. And so he used their arrogance and rebuked them in a way to rearrange their thinking so that they would understand. Then in verse, verses 35 through 40, verses 35 through 40, we see this again. Again, these are themes that we see Mark uh, playing on in his writing. Uh, verses 35 through 40, Then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Quite presumptuous. Verse 36, And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And here comes their arrogant question based on their own human thinking again. Okay. Verse 37, And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Now here again is Jesus' response, exposing their hearts in light of the call to come follow me and the cost of true discipleship. And here's what he says, verse 38. But Jesus said to him, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup which I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And he's talking about the cross. He's talking about what it means to fulfill the mission of God, and he knew what his mission was. And here comes the arrogant boast, just like the rich young ruler, saying, yeah, I've done all that stuff. Here's what they say in verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. Yes, Lord, we're able. We can handle this. We got this, okay? And Jesus responds again, exposing their hearts. He says, this cup that I drink, you will drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, meaning you're going to go through it just like I go through it. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. It's for those for whom it has been prepared. Okay? So, fellas, the Father, he's saying, has, has all of this worked out. It's, it's already part of his sovereign plan. It's in place. You're being presumptuous. You're being arrogant. He exposes their heart. Wink, wink. You are going to get what's coming to you. All right? And both of them did. Yes, they receive reward, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But he was saying you're still thinking in human terms. You're still thinking in human terms. I'll write down verses 42 through 45. So as you begin to see these stack on one another, you see this is something that Mark is purposefully doing, the Spirit's inspiring Mark to do. Verses 42 through 45. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. And then here's this just epic statement he makes. For even the Son of Man, God in the flesh, did not come to be served, but I came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Do you see what he's doing? Rearranging their human thinking and giving them an eternal perspective exposing their hearts. Now, these unique features reveal the Holy Spirit by the hand of Mark weaving together a narrative that you and I can follow along with, and it clarifies the truth for us as we read. Now, one additional aspect, letter E, letter E is geography. Letter E is geography. And rather than point these things out to you this morning specifically, we're going to do that as we go in the study but it's really important, as this morning some of you may have seen the picture I posted of the steps in front of the temple. Uh, we went to Israel. We got to go and see some of these places ourselves. We're going to go. Uh, the invitation is out there. Start saving money 2025. 
Okay, it's a once in a lifetime trip. If you guys think you can make it work, uh, it's about a $5,000 investment per person. But once again, you've got a few years, you can just start putting money back and, and we can look ahead to doing that. We can all go down through Hezekiah's tunnel and, and wade in the water under Jerusalem and do all these amazing things, okay? Um, but geography is so important to our study of scripture. Uh, Mark makes note of various places and events that take place in his writing style. 95% of everything Jesus did, he did right around the Sea of Galilee, okay? It's incredible when you actually go there and realize everything's right here around this teardrop or this, this harp-shaped um, sea or lake. It's actually a lake, but in Scripture it's called the sea and the lake. But 95% of all of his miracles and, and ministry took place around the Sea of Galilee. The other 5%, some took place in Nazareth, uh, Jesus' boyhood home. Some took place in Jericho. They always had to go through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, that pathway up to Jerusalem, we got to see it. I got to look at the, the pathway where the, 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 young, the, uh, the Good Samaritan story takes place and also where Jesus, three times a year, traveled that very trail th up through those canyons on the way to Jerusalem to worship, okay? And you guys can go there with me and see it too, okay? Um, incidentally, there comes a turning point in the book of Mark that leads up to that final week in Jerusalem, and Jesus' mission pivots in Mark's writing style. Uh, if you look at chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 8, verse 31, we kind of there's this hinging moment, and it's Peter's confession that you all know about, that we've read many, many times. Um, Thou art the Christ, right? And we, we know that. It's at Caesarea Philippi. Again, I visited there. You would get to see what, what was taking place there. So right after that confession in chapter 8, verse 31, here's verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again, verse 32, and he was stating the matter openly. So he had kept that kind of secret before now. Well, right here in uh, this pivot, pivoting moment in Christ's ministry, he begins to tell them, guys... We're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. This is not going to work out the way that you think it's going to work out. I'm going to go, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And from this point on, he's plainly talking about his suffering, his coming death, his burial, his resurrection, and all of that. None of which the disciples could see clearly. Okay? And what does he mean by that? Like, that's what they're asking. What does he mean by he's going to suffer and die? Is that allegory? Is, that, is he spiritualizing? Is that What's going on with that? It means, guys... He's going to suffer and die, okay? Letter F, structure. Letter F, structure. We're getting, we're, we're winding down here, okay? So hang with me for about 10 more minutes. Two specific miracles involving blind men, all right? The first is in chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. And this one, to be honest, always puzzled me for many years. I didn't get it, Okay? But it doesn't puzzle me anymore. And if you read just prior to this event, this blind man being healed, we see the disciples struggling again with the whole concept of basing things on human terms versus God's terms and, and what God eternal perspective. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 and he had baskets full left over. But now the disciples are in the boat and they're actually complaining that they have no bread. Okay, They're, like, they're, they're upset that they have no bread. And Jesus 
Ask them a question right here. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? I don't know about you, but if Jesus looked at me in the eye and said, why are you discussing? Like, you know, and he makes eye contact and he's asked, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Okay, now I want you to watch this because this is amazing. Mark 8, 21, Jesus' question to them, do you not understand? When you're speaking to someone and they can't hear you, or they've got clogged ears or whatever the case may be, they actually can't hear you, you might ask them, do you understand? Like, read, read my lips. Can you understand? Do you not understand? That's something he's asking them. Okay? And even we know, ladies, sometimes your husbands, when you're talking, they actually can hear you, but they're not understanding, right? And you might say, oh, we got an amen over here. So, so some of you might say to your husband, do you not understand? Do you not, do you not understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? And so they did not understand and they did not see clearly. That's what Jesus is getting at. Because immediately we have this account of the blind man brought to Jesus. And after Jesus touches him, he asks this question in verse 23. Do you see anything? Immediately right after he asks the disciples, do you not have eyes? He asked this man, do you see anything? And he looked up and was saying, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. So he it was still, he could see something, but it was all out of focus. All right. Verse 25, then he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and he was restored and began to see everything clearly. Okay. This was not Jesus making a mistake or the blind man's lack of faith or or uh, faith or Jesus's lack of ability to heal because of a man's lack of faith nothing like that. This was Jesus making a point to his own disciples. This takes place right after he posed the two questions to his disciples. They were not seeing clearly. They did not understand. Now what was it that they did not understand? They were still thinking in human terms. They were still expecting Jesus to be the Messiah in the victorious uh, form of the Messiah, to, to overthrow Rome and defeat them and trample them down and set up the kingdom right away. Take over. That's what they wanted Jesus to do. And he was speaking plainly about what was about to happen in his suffering, and he was speaking plainly about what that meant for his own disciples because it meant something pretty important. So let's look at the second account of the blind man in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And this story, the, the, the blind man has a name. The first blind man didn't have a name. This blind man, his name's Bartimaeus, okay? There's a point to that. He recognized Jesus by the sound of his voice. Apparently, he began to call out to him in faith by addressing him as the son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me, he cries out to Jesus and got Christ's attention. And of course, they bring him to Jesus. He was physically blind, but he called him by his name, the son of David. He understood how to address him. He knew who he was and he cried out to him in faith. And so this man physically blind saw better than Jesus' own disciples at this point. They, he understood more than they did. And I want to show you something in chapter 10, verse 51, chapter 10, verse 51. And Jesus answered him and said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, uh, Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he regained his sight 
and began following him on the road. Immediately he regained his sight and he began to follow Jesus on the road. Bartimaeus began following Jesus on the road, the road to where? This was the road that began in Jericho and it would lead up to Jerusalem. This was the road that in just a few days would lead Jesus to the cross and his death. And Bartimaeus saw this clearly knowing who he was, he understood. And Jesus exposed Bartimaeus' heart in light of his call to come follow me. The cost of true discipleship led to the cross and Bartimaeus followed whatever the cost would be. But the disciples, where were they? These were men lacking in understanding. These were the men who were closest to Jesus and they would soon abandon him. They would run away from their friend, their Lord, and leave him alone with Roman guards and conspiring Jews to be beaten and to be mocked and tortured and flogged and eventually be murdered. These were those closest to him. But they were still yet mere men, like the man who saw the men walking around like trees around him. They did not understand. They could not see clearly. And Simon Peter, Simon Peter should have been on that road to Calvary with Jesus. Having not denied him three times prior, he should have been willing to die for Christ. Simon Peter should have been there to carry Christ's cross. But instead, they called out to another Simon, Simon of Serene, to pick up Jesus' cross and carry it to the place of the skull. We know the rest of the story, though, of the disciples, don't we? It's not, we're not left in that, in that moment. Though they didn't understand, though they were vying for authority to sit at one right hand or the left hand of Jesus and his kingdom, being boastful with ears but not hearing and eyes but not seeing, though they ran away and doubted and denied him when they saw him resurrected and he breathed the Spirit of God into them, they understood and they never stopped seeing. They walked the road of fellowship with Christ in his suffering and each and every one of them, save one, died a martyr's death just like Jesus did. The power of the living God empowered their hearts in light of Christ's call to come, follow me, and they paid the cost of true discipleship. As I close this overview, I want to give you a way to read the book of Mark based on the composition of the book and just kind of simple statements, how to break it down. And I would suggest that you read this several times over the next uh, few months or several months as we go through this. Um, and here are some hints of how to break it down in segments, as I said. Uh, to really get the overall thrust of what Mark is writing. Chapter 1, chapter one, verses 1 through 13. If you're taking notes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. We're going to call this the prologue. The prologue. And you've seen prologues in books. It's the introduction. Chapter 1, 1 through 13, the prologue. Mark writes, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First, he connects Jesus to the Old Testament prophets that prophesied about him, both Malachi and Isaiah. Okay? Then he introduces the greatest and final prophet uh, because he's the actual forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. So it closes out all the prophecy about the coming Messiah. And John the Baptist is actually proclaiming the Messiah when the Messiah shows up, which makes him the greatest prophet. In each of these sections, I think we can boil it down to a focal point, a key statement in those sections. And in that first section, uh, as I mentioned, uh, it was right there in verse 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In chapter 1, verse 14 is the next section through all the way through chapter 8, verse 30. So chapter 1, 
verse 14 through chapter 8, verse 30, the second section. And we're going to call this the identity of Jesus Christ, the identity of Jesus Christ. And remember, I'll post these notes on Facebook, so if you miss some, you can write them down. These chapters identify who Jesus is very clearly through his miracles. These miracles connect Jesus to the Old Testament, both the Job and the Genesis, as I mentioned, in a few, in a few ways. And in this section of Mark's gospel, it's made clear to them and to the reader who Jesus really is, both through his miracles and his teachings. Mark identifies Jesus without any, a doubt, any doubt. He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And if we were to identify the key statement in this section, this section of Scripture, it would very obviously be Peter's confession. He said, quote, you are the Christ. And that's in chapter 8, verse 29. Chapter 8, verse 29, you are the Christ. He has all power, all authority over creation. Uh, he's All he's created, Mark is pressing in on the necessity to know who this man is, his miracles, his growing popularity with the crowds, but simultaneously the rising uh, angst with the Pharisees and the scribes Okay, and as we discussed in chapter eight, verse thirty-one, this pivot takes place. So, so the next part begins in chapter eight, verse thirty-one, and goes through the end of chapter ten. So, chapter eight, thirty-one through the end of chapter ten, and this is called discipleship defined. Discipleship defined. And here's the deal: based on who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. His mission and his attitude, what does it mean to be a true disciple of Christ? Did they understand the cost? And we find that the disciples struggled to see and understand uh, the concept of greatness. True success in life is defined not in human terms, but in eternal terms. And here's the statement in this section. The key statement defining this section uh, is that discipleship is not defined in human terms, but eternal terms. And that's in chapter 10, verse 45. Chapter 10, verse 45, and here's what Jesus says. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's, la- he's the standard for what it looks like to be a true disciple. And the final section, folks, thanks for hanging with me. The final section begins in chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 16, verse 8. Chap- uh, chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 16, verse 8. And I call this the suffering servant. This is all about the suffering servant. And as I mentioned above, he was abandoned by everyone. He suffered. He died. Even in his death, it was evidenced who he was. And the key statement defining this section would be chapter 15, verse 39. A centurion soldier, a Gentile, making the same proclamation that Peter made earlier. Truly, this man was the Son of God. And that's the statement there. So what Mark is doing here is giving us a panoramic view of the identity of Christ and the mission of the Messiah. He isn't focusing so much on the detailed teachings, but rather the events that can be grouped together to explain the implications of those two, who Christ was and what he came to do. And if you're making a key statement for the entire book of Mark, you can sum it all up this way. The Son of God, the all-powerful Messiah, becomes the suffering servant to save that which was lost. The, the, the Son of God, the all-powerful Messiah, becomes the suffering servant to save that which was lost. And the purpose of the book is stated really in Christ's statement to the disciples. We looked at their failure and lack of understanding. He was constantly telling them that he was here to suffer and die, and he boils it all down for them 
Even here this morning, he boils it down for us as, as disciples. And if you miss this, honestly, you miss the whole point of our even being followers of Christ and our mission here on the earth. It isn't success based in human terms. It's eternal. And here's the point of his mission that affects each and every one of us all. Chapter 8, verse 34. Chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's it. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, here is what you must do. Recognize first who he really is. And that inevitably leads to number two. Join him on his mission, whatever it might cost you. Amen? Give up your life for him. Live your life as a living sacrifice for him and accomplish his, miss, his mission. So my question to you this morning, with all these questions that Christ has posed, uh, are you living your life as a sacrifice to him? Do you have eyes to see this morning? Do you see his, his, his mission for you in your life? Or are you distracted by the world around you? Do you have ears to hear? Do you understand what your life is all about? Not in human terms, but in eternal terms. And these are the questions that were faced this morning and will continue to be challenged with as we study the book of Mark together. And I promise I'll try to break it down so it's not quite as long next week, okay? But I do appreciate you hanging with me. And, uh, and let's, uh, let's pray together. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.